The Bob Murphy Show, episode 198. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today, I am going to be broadcasting for you the lecture I gave to Jonathan Newman's master's class for the Mises Institute. So in case you don't know, we now have online master's classes. So it was his Econ 504 course on macroeconomics. But what Jonathan and I ended up deciding on was that for this guest lecture, I would give the title as the pure time preference theory of interest in the Austrian tradition. So I mostly focused on what Bambaver did and then Frank Fetter and Mises and Rothbard's elaborations and critiques of it what gave us what's now called the pure time preference theory of interest, which is the standard way that Austrians explain interest. Partly the reason we settled on this was because I had recently talked to Jeff Herbner, which is going to be the interview you good folks will hear next episode. All right, so just the way these things all came together, I realized, ah, if I go ahead and give this lecture to Jonathan's class, I'll go ahead and then use this as episode 198 to sort of set the table so you can better understand in episode 199, my interview with Jeff Herbner on this stuff. All right, so that's what this is. And in case you're confused, what Jeff, because Jeff Herbner responded to my critiques of the pure time preference theory recently at the Mises Institute, but that's what we talk about in 199. And so I'm very excited that Jeff, he and I are closer than I thought or going into that conversation, right? So partly that's why I wanted to tell Jonathan's master's class this is because, hey, I think there's developments in Austrian economics in real time here, and let me let you in on it. So that's what's going on. All right, so without further ado, here is the lecture I gave to Jonathan Newman's class for the Mises Institute's master's program. And just so you know, I cut it off, you know, at the, at the end of this, we had half hour sort of Q&A, but I, I cut that off to, to protect the privacy of the innocent. So here we go. Okay, so Eugen von Bumbawerk, the only thing possibly cooler than his name is his appearance, was, I guess we'd call him a second generation Austrian. So you can see, you know, he was born in 1851. Remember Karl Menger's Grundsatz, the, what we translate as principles of economics that sort of invented Austrian economics out of whole cloth, just, you know, uh, I think it was Schumpeter that said, you know, Menger was nobody's pupil, something like that. Like, and by that, what he meant was, it's not that Menger, you know, arose in the tradition of some earlier economist and then updated some things. It was like Menger's book was just a bolt from the blue. Relative to other people, obviously, he had precursors. But so if Menger sort of invented Austrian economics in 1871, you can see Bumbavrik was only 20 when that came out. So he's like the second generation along with uh, Wieser. So I've got here on this slide, and, and Jonathan has this PowerPoint in case you guys want to get this um, later just to have it. I listed some of his major works here, and they're not necessarily in chronological order. The three that are in red, I've grouped together 
because those are the ones, if you've ever seen the big fat red book called Capital and Interest by Bombavert, it's these three things, you know, collected as three volumes in one big physical book. So that's why I'm, I'm lumping these three together and they're somewhat out of order relative to the other two things. So basic principles of economic value in 1886, that was sort of an elaboration upon the new, what we would now call subjective marginal utility theory that Menger helped usher in. So in a standard history of economic thought course, you know, taught by someone who doesn't care about the Austrians one way or the other, they will say, oh yeah, the so-called marginalist revolution was in the early 1870s and there were three people that are jointly credited with it. Karl Menger's one, while Ross is another, and William Stanley Jevons is the third, right? So everybody agrees that Karl Menger was one of the ones who independently discovered what we now call subjective marginal utility theory. And so Bumbavert just kind of spelled out the implications of that. By the way, the, the reason on this listing here, I have this one and then the Karl Marx and the close of his system in quotation marks as opposed to an italics, is when he originally released these, they were just essays or maybe you'd call them monographs. Okay, so they it, it wasn't like it was a, a standalone book. It was long essays. And now when you get them though, they're, you know, they'd be in book form, but that's why I'm, I'm just doing that. Um, and so what, what Bumbavert did in this 1886 essay was just kind of elaborate on this new subjective marginal utility theory. And, and it's worth looking at, especially if you're, you know, interested in history of thought kind of thing, because he gets into some things that we just don't even talk about anymore that are kind of important. Stuff like what's the difference between utility and value and price and uh, kind of subtleties like what if I'm not a smoker and then somebody gives me, you know, a pack of cigarettes that I know I can trade to somebody else for something that I do value. So it's actually a little bit tricky to be consistent in your own framework and how you handle something like that because it doesn't directly give you utility, but yet it's valuable to you because you know you can trade it away, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm just saying Bombavik really spelled out the framework for thinking through that stuff because this was all still relatively new at, at this time. So, so, you know, people had to sit down and really just think through this new framework. So that's, you know, what he did there. So, and let me just briefly talk about this last one, Karl Marx and the close of his system. This is a great tour de force. It sounds like he's saying like, oops, this is the nail in the coffin for Marxist economics. And I was reading just and getting ready for this presentation. I think actually in the, in terms of the original German title, it's more that Bombavik was saying, okay, now finally that Marx has given us the next installment let's see if he solved the problem that we all saw in the previous installment, right? That in other words, there was an apparent contradiction early on. And then let's see if Marx with his latest publication solves this apparent, oh, no, he doesn't, right? So it, it does serve like a twofold purpose rhetorically. Like he is saying, boom, Marx's economics is dead in the water. But the close of his system, apparently, you know, he, he meant more just like, okay, now that he's, you know, published the culmination, did he, did he fix the problem? No, he didn't. Okay, um, and, and that, I can't get into it now in the Q&A if you want, I'll talk more about that. It, has, it had more to do with the way Marx explained how it is that the capitalists exploit the workers and, and earn profit basically from their output. There were some problems with that. And, and, and according to Bumbauer, Marx didn't fix that. Okay, but what we're talking about tonight is his work on interest theories. So the first one in 1884, History of Critique of Interest Theories, this is just masterful. 
so he just goes through, he comes up with a taxonomy that he invents to sort of classify every possible explanation of interest up to that point, you know, put them all in their different boxes and say, oh, these are like the use theories. These are the waiting theories. These are the productivity theories. And then he just goes through and sort of builds each one up, you know, drawing on some of the best expositors of that particular type of explanation and then blows it up and then says, oh, well, let's take that argument away that I just used. Let's build it back up again. Let me blow it up with a completely different argument. Like it's just, it's amazing rhetorically how he does it. All right. So after he blows up all the existing theories, you're like, well, okay, so then where, where does interest come from? And so that's what he does in his positive theory of capital, which is 1889. And he goes through and gives his own explanation of this is where interest comes from. Okay. And then the further essays are just him battling with various people arguing about, you know, his work up to that point. Okay, so in terms of understanding what Frank Fetter and Ludwig von Mises and then Rothbard, who just, you know, sort of carries through what Mises says about it, in order to understand their problem with Bumbavark, we got to focus on this particular critique. So again, Bumbavark in that first, what's now the first volume of his collection, Capital and Interest, is he cataloged all the existing explanations of interest up to that point and then has a critique of each one of them to show what, no, this isn't, this isn't it, this isn't it. Nobody's explained it so far, is, is, you know, the conclusion. So one particular subgroup, so in the field of productivity theories of interest, there was a subgroup that he was calling the naive productivity theory. In the, he, so he's going to criticize that a certain way. And so my claim, just so you guys don't get mixed up, is what I'm going to argue is that later on when Frank Fetter and Mises say, wow, Bumbavark is a genius. He paved the way to understand where interest comes from. But paradoxically, ironically, he himself relapsed into a productivity explanation, even though he showed us why that was wrong. I'm going to argue, no, Bumbavark did not contradict himself. Okay, so that's partly why I'm doing this is just kind of, in my mind, set the record straight. Say what you will about what Bumbavark's own theory is. I don't think he himself is susceptible to his critiques of the naive productivity theory of interest. And by the way, just that word naive is part of my argument, is, you know, my defense of Bumbavark is to say it, it wasn't that that was a superfluous term. He wasn't saying all productivity explanations are naive. He was saying, no, the naive productivity th theory explanation is wrong because, da, 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 you know, it doesn't even get off the ground. That's why he's calling it naive. Like this is a very simplistic productivity theory, right? So Bumbavark did not think he was blowing up any productivity element in understanding where interest comes from in a market economy. Okay, so let's first go through and I'll, so here I'll slow down a little bit. And I know I've been kind of throwing a lot at you, but here I'll slow down because it's critical. I want you to understand this. So first of all, what is it that we're trying to explain? I don't have this as a bullet point right now on the slide in case you're looking around for it. This is something I'm realizing. Let me first set the table that the way Bumbavar conceived of what is the interest problem or what's the phenomenon in a market economy that we as economists are supposed to explain when we come up with a theory of interest is why is it that capitalists, you know, people who have a command of, uh, you know, a capital sum that can be expressed in financial terms, why is it that they can invest those funds in capital goods and, you know, just more generally means of production, factors of production, 
and then earn a flow of income over time, even though they're not putting in like any of their labor, right? So we understand at this point, it was pretty well understood that, you know, why would a landowner earn rental income? That, that's, that's pretty straightforward, right? He's got this scarce resource that's productive. He charges for it, right? It, the, the land yields tomatoes. People like tomatoes. They're willing to pay for it. So that's pretty straightforward. So that's why if you own land that shoots out tomatoes and you sell them, that's why you get a flow of income over time, right? Okay. Why, why how workers, how come they get wages? How, how come they earn wage income? Well, that's pretty straightforward. Labor's pretty scarce. It's productive. So the worker who sells his labor hours gets a flow of income. That makes sense. But now the question is, why is it that a capitalist, and I'm just going to use dollar terms just because, you know, I'm from the United States. Someone's got $100,000 and he invests it in factors of production. You know, he goes out and buys raw materials. He hires workers. He maybe rents a building out, you know, and combines those inputs to then sell output down the road. And once the dust settles and he's, you know, completely liquidated his operation and just has it all in the form of money again, typically he will have more than $100,000, right? Like that's not a surprising outcome, right? If somebody who's, you know, a wise capitalist and especially, you know, invests in something that's pretty stable, you know, not some crazy venture that's very risky, can predictably turn $100,000 today into whatever, $103,000 one year from now. And so the question is, why? You know, it, it, you know, again, with somebody who owns farmland or, you know, a timber, somebody who owns a forest, that makes sense. Somebody who owns a, a stream that, that you can catch fish in, it makes sense why they would earn income over time. A laborer totally makes sense. But why is it that a capitalist with a sum of money can turn it into more money over time? That's what we're trying to explain. Okay. So now returning to this PowerPoint slide, what some people argued, and this is what Bambaver would have classified as a naive productivity explanation is they said, oh, well, it's obvious why capitalists earn an interest income because look, capital is productive. And then, you know, if, if you push them, so well, what do you mean capital is productive? They said, well, if you have capital goods, you can produce more stuff than if you don't have capital goods. Duh. Why, why is this a mystery? So of course, so now I'm gonna, I'll just be specific. Somebody who spends $100,000 buying a tractor. So let's say a brand new tractor has a sale price of $100,000, then uses the tractor combined, you know, in, in the farming operations to help harvest the wheat or whatever. And now because you have a tractor, you can harvest more wheat every cycle and you sell more wheat to the consumers and you earn more money. And so that's why, let's say the tractor lasts 10 years before it's just total junk and you just got to throw it out. And so that's why once the 10 years are up, you have more than $100,000 that you made from the additional revenues that you earned because you used a tractor rather than not using a tractor, all right? So to them, yeah, and, and, and why should that be? Because look, at the tractor's productive. What are you talking about? Duh. So that's what Bambavrik said. No, that is a naive productivity theory. And the reason that's not a good explanation is, to, is Bambavrik said, look at the fact that the tractor is physically productive, the fact that you can make, that you can harvest more crops with a tractor than without the tractor, that explains why the tractor has a market price. That's why it's valuable. That's why people pay money for tractors. And someone who owns a tractor can sell it to somebody else or rent it out. That's why people are willing to pay dollars for the tractor because they know, oh, I can 
produce more. I can, I, you know, my harvest will be bigger using the tractor than without. And Babavik said, that is not, does not solve the interest problem, right? Because for, in, for the capitalist to earn a positive rate of interest or a positive rate of return on his investment, what, we need two things to happen. We need that, okay, what's the purchase price of the tractor? Let's say it's $100,000. And now we need an additional fact. It needs to be the case that the extra wheat that we're able to harvest and sell every cycle because we have the tractor brings in not just more than zero, but has to bring in more than $100,000 extra when all is said and done before the tractor is completely depreciated and useless. And you just throw it out and don't even get anything for scrap, let's say, just to keep the example simple. That's what we have to explain. So there's a sense, Bambavrik says, in which we as economists need to explain the apparent undervaluation of the new capital good. Because we've got this tractor, let's say that we know over its 10-year lifespan, when we get the money from it, you know, from the extra yields of the crop yields because of this tractor, we'll end up with $110,000 a decade from now. And so the only way we're going to earn a positive rate of return on our financial investment is if the purchase price of the tractor today is less than $110,000. So yes, if it happens to be $100,000, that will explain why, oh, we pay $100,000 today. And then over the course of a decade, we end up with $110,000. And so over the decade, we earn a cumulative 10% return on our money. That makes sense. But notice, Mavar said, when you're trying to explain that, why is it that the today's purchase price of the tractor is less than what we expect it to give us over time, right? We expect it. In other words, if someone were just to give you the tractor for free and you, and, they, and you said, hey, because I gave you this gift, look at your future self one decade from now. You know, you'll have less hair. Your beard will be gray. How many extra dollars will you have in your possession because I gave you this free gift? And you say, oh, at that point, I'll, have, I'll be $110,000 wealthier because of this. And so then someone says, oh, you know what? Instead of giving it to you as a gift, I'm going to charge you for it. How much will you pay me for this tractor right now? If the person said $110,000, then there would be no interest. There would be a 0% rate of return on the financial investment, even though the tractor is still admittedly physically productive. The point is its productivity would already have been fully reflected in its immediate spot price when it was brand new. So again, Mbavrik is saying the problem with these so-called naive productivity explanations is to explain why is it the purchase price of a capital good is less than what it's expected to yield over time, it doesn't make sense to say, oh, because it's productive. No, it's almost like you have to come up with some reason, you know, something that's wrong with it. To say why it's good doesn't explain why it's not fully, its purchase price isn't fully reflecting what it's going to do for you over time. All right, so because of time constraints, I got to move on. I hope I really crystallize that for you folks. All right, so that was Bambavrik's critique of what he called the naive productivity theory of interest. He, his point was, it doesn't, it doesn't work on its own terms. It doesn't explain the problem. The fact that capital goods are physically productive, the fact that you can produce more with them than without them, just explains why they have a purchase price, why they're valuable. It doesn't explain why buying them and using them over time gives you more dollars than what you had to pay for them up front, which is what we need to explain as economists to understand the phenomenon of interest. Okay. So then now in his positive theory of capital, how does Bambavrik explain it? And, and again, there were lots and lots of different attempts to explain the phenomenon. The, the naive productivity theory was just like one subgenre that Bambavrik used what I just showed you to blow up those ones. He blew up all the other ones too. So then Bambavrik 
now in the 18, in his 1889 book, gives what, what he called an agio theory, which is sort of like meaning exchange. And so he said in his own explanation, he said the nubbin kernel, that was the phrase translated into English that he said, the nubbin kernel of his own explanation was this. Present goods are, as a rule, worth more than future goods of equal quality and quantity. All right. And so what he meant there was subjectively. So I'd like to say, if you went up to a person and said, hey, I can give you an apple now, or I can give you an apple of, you know, one apple, so equal quantity, and it's a similar type of apple, right? It's not like a good apple now or versus a rotten apple or a golden delicious apple now versus a um, Macintosh, you know, because people might have different preferences over types of apple. But the same quality of apple, I can give it to you now or I'll give it to you next year. When do you want it? And Bambavrik said, as a general rule, people want to get present goods, you know, they prefer present goods to future goods. Or another way of putting it is if someone said, hey, I, I can't get, you know, how about you give me those 10 apples right now and I'll give you claims on apples to be delivered a year from now. Can I just give you 10? The person would say, no, if I'm giving up 10 apples right now, you need to give me whatever, 12 apples next year for me to be willing to do the trade because I follow the rule that present goods are more valuable than future goods. Okay, so just accept for the sake of argument that that's true. If that is true, then that explains the interest problem, right? Because for example, the tractor it's going to give us an extra flow of wheat over time. So in terms of like bushels of wheat, if we figured out, oh, this year it's going to give us an extra, whatever, 200, and then next year extra 200 over time, we would not for today trade the equivalent in money terms of that many bushels of wheat for the tractor because today to get the tractor, we're giving up present bushels of wheat. Whereas what the tractor is going to give us is future bushels of wheat, you know, and, and each increment is going to be further and further into the future. And so if a bushel of wheat delivered 10 years from now, subjectively is not worth as much to us as a present bushel of wheat, well, then we would only give, you know, a smaller number of bushels of wheat for the tractor if we were just trading like in barter than, you know, what, than what it's going to yield over time. Okay. So that's the, the simple insight. Once you get that, that explains the interest problem. So that's why if you gave the equivalent money terms of $100,000 worth of present wheat to get a tractor today that's brand new, and then you used it over time to give you more bushels of wheat, the total number of bushels that it would add to your collection over time because you physically possess it would be greater than whatever it was that got you $100,000 that you know cost $100,000 originally. All right? So it's like in a sense, you would transform a certain number of bushels of wheat physically today into a greater number down the road, assuming that it happens to be the case that present bushels of wheat are more valuable to people than future bushels of wheat, okay? And so then now, if you just switch it back to money, you can just see how that works. Okay, so that's why if you had $100,000 worth of wheat today, then you end up with more bushels in the future than you sold them for money, you might end up with whatever, $110,000 worth of wheat. And so that's why measured in money terms, your wealth increases over time but it's a real phenomenon. What's driving it is the fact that present goods are more valuable than future goods. Okay, so that's it. All right. Now, why did Bambavrik think that? So he had three reasons. I'll go through this quickly. First, he said, often more is available in the future 
And so there's a lower margin utility, right? If in general, we expect for various reasons, wheat harvest to keep going up over time so that 10 years from now, wheat will be more plentiful than it is today, then on the margin, an extra bushel of wheat is going to be more valuable today than it will be 10 years from now because our future selves are going to be overflowing with wheat. So one more bushel then is not that big a deal. Whereas today, because wheat's scarcer, an extra bushel of wheat is more valuable on the margin, right? So he thought in general, that's one reason. The second part of his explanation was that he said there's psychologically, for various reasons, people tend to systematically undervalue their future wants. Just in general, it's hard for people to picture what they're going to be doing in 10 years. So there's this sort of bias towards present satisfaction, right? It's sort of like a cycle. Or, and also too, like if you want to talk about like lack of willpower, that would fall under this umbrella of this part of the explanation. And then third, he said there's a higher physical productivity of what he called roundabout processes. So because of our time constraints here, I can't dwell too long on this, but he was basically saying the longer you have to develop technological recipes, the more physically productive your inputs are, right? So very quickly, let me just run through this real quick. Let's say you're out in the woods and you have a cabin and there's a stream that's 100 yards away or whatever, 100 meters away if you're using the metric system. And you want to get the water from the stream into your cabin. A very direct approach is you just go back and forth with your hands and cup the water. So that's very quick and immediate, direct, but it's very it's not very productive. The number of gallons of water or liters of water you can get into your cabin per hour is low. If instead you take the time to build a bucket, then it's going to be better, right? Like in terms of if you divide the number of gallons or liters of water divided by the number of total hours where it includes you first going in some in the woods and like using wood or whatever to build a bucket somehow, the liters of water or, or gallons of water per hour of your labor will be higher, all right? But it'll, it'll take longer. And then if you take the time to build a shovel and you dig a trench and you, you, know, you have a really complicated system with uh, you know, a dam and, and whatnot, and so that the river, the stream flows right into your cabin, well, then you have a very high amount of gallons of water per hour of labor that you put into the project but it's going to take much longer for that to start yielding its output for you to get that up and running. So that's the sense. Okay, let me um, just adjust my clock here. I, I will wrap this up quickly because the other stuff I need to talk about is going to be quick, but obviously I'm, I'm a little bit, so I'll give myself eight more minutes. All right. Um, so that you see, that's how Wippenbavrick meant by saying longer processes are more roundabout. And, and why do you use that word roundabout? So, quick thing for him, the term longer was not synonymous with roundabout roundabout meant instead of directly attacking what you want, you first do an intermediate goal, sort of like in video games where, you know, you're trying to do one thing, but before you do that, you got to do like a side quest. That's, that's kind of what he means here. So in equilibrium, more roundabout processes are going to take longer because otherwise, you know, you would do the short ones first, but, um, the idea is, oh, what you wanted, you want to get water into your cabin. So using your hands was a very direct approach. But if instead you went and found a coconut and hollowed that out with some rocks to make a bucket, someone seeing you finding a rock and like hollowing out a coconut 
we said, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm doing this to get water into my cabin. It wouldn't be obvious, right? Because you're doing a roundabout, right? So that's the idea. Okay, so again, don't get confused. Bumbavirk was saying the interest phenomenon, how do I explain that? Present goods are more subjectively valuable than future goods. Just in general, if you said to somebody, hey, if you had a choice, do you want a good now or do you want to claim on that good that's going to deliver it to you in the future? They said, give it to me right now. So that's, if, if that happens to be true, that explains interest. End of story. But now, Bambavrik said, why is it the case that present goods are more valuable than future goods? And that's where he offers these three reasons or what he called three grounds for the higher valuation of present goods versus future goods. And so it's this third one the higher physical productivity of more roundabout processes, that's the notorious one the economists were arguing with him over. Okay, but I'm, I'm sort of anticipating my defense of him against the criticism of Fetter and Mises. He, this is what I'm saying. Bambavrik was not contradicting himself here. He was saying present goods are subjectively more valuable than future goods. That explains interest. Boom. Now, if you're asking me why is this the case, I can go ahead and give you some reasons, the third one of which involves facts about physical productivity that happen to be true in this world. So here, let me give you an analogy. If I'm trying to explain why would an employer pay wages to a worker using standard subjective value theory, I would say, oh, the reason that employer gave $10 for the hour of that person's labor is because the employer valued the product of that hour of labor more than she valued the $10. And then on the other hand, why did the worker perform the labor in exchange for $10 because that worker subjectively preferred the $10 to the hour of leisure that was sacrificed, right? So that's all subjective value theory. We're just, you know, different valuations of those two things on the margin. And that's why they made the mutually advantageous trade. But now as economists, we don't just stop there and say, oh yeah, for whatever reason, these people called employers happen to like it when other people work for them. You know, it's not our job to explain why they just do, you know, there's no accounting for Subjective preferences. Some people like the Mona Lisa. Some people like Radiohead. You know, just it is what it is. No, as economists, we say, oh, for that particular subjective valuation that the employer valued the hour of labor more than the $10 in wages, it's because of marginal productivity, that that labor is physically productive. The output of the factory is higher because that worker contributed an hour of labor. And so that's, you know, and we go through the explanation. So it would be silly when an economist says wages are partly determined by marginal productivity to say, oh, but since 1871, we've known that value is subjective. So stop relapsing into this crude classical, you see what I'm saying? That th the way it works is, yeah, yeah, everything is subjective in the final analysis or in the first analysis. But what we're trying to explain a certain subset of subjective preferences, productivity considerations do come in. And that's true even for Mises and Rothbard. So I'm saying that's what Bumbavrik is doing here when it comes to intertemporal subjective valuations. Okay, so now I'll go real quick through this stuff and then turn over your guys' questions. So Frank Fetter comes along. He praises Bumbavrik for clarifying the interest problem, for paving the way, but then he chastises him and says, yeah, it's weird though. After Bumbavrik showed that it was the subjective higher valuation of present goods versus future goods, and that's what explains interest, for some reason, Bambavrik then allows productivity in through the back door. When it was Bambavrik who showed us that no, productivity per se has nothing to do with interest. Productivity explains 
the prices of capital goods, it does not explain why you earn a return when you buy them. Okay, now what Fetter advocated was what he called a capitalization theory. So Fetter's own theory was to say, I've got this capital good, a tractor, and I can now anticipate the flow of physical output over time, and then I can convert those increments and in output due to my ownership of the tractor in, into money terms, right? Like every year, oh, I'm going to get this much more wheat because I have a tractor. When I sell it at that time, how much extra money will I have? And so now you mentally convert this tractor into a flow of extra net income in money terms. And now to convert that to a present sum of money, you need to use some kind of discount rate by which you capitalize that flow of money over time into a present spot value. And then that's the most you'd be willing to pay for the tractor right now. All right. And so Fetter's point was physical productivity has nothing to do with it. Physical productivity explains the increment in physical output at each year in the future. It does not explain the discount rate that I use when I wonder, okay, this tractor is going to give me an extra $7,000 eight years from now in present dollar terms. How much is that worth to me? Because it's not worth, I forget if I said seven or eight, but it's not worth that full amount to me right now because present money is worth more than future money. I discount it. So Fetter's point was the physical productivity of the tractor has nothing to do with the discount rate I'm using. And that's where interest comes from. Okay, Mises comes along. He agrees with Fetter in advocating a pure time preference theory, meaning productivity has nothing to do with it. It's purely about time preference. And all Mises then tweaked was he said, Fetter thought it was empirical. The time preference is an empirical phenomenon. Mises says, no, you can know it. Time preference is true on a priori grounds. Okay, this guy Murphy comes along defended Bambavrik from the charge of inconsistency. I said, no, Fetter and Mises misunderstood what Bambavrik said. Bambavrik did not let productivity into the back door. And I kind of already gave you the sense in which I make that point. Having said that, I'm confusing. I say, so Bambavrik's theory is internally consistent. He didn't make some bonehead mistake. He didn't forget what he wrote in the previous volume when he blew up the naive productivity theory. However, Austrians should reject the pure time preference theory. It's, a, it's not Austrian. It's, it, for one thing, it's a real theory, meaning it's about real goods, right? Present goods are more valuable than future goods. Money is like an afterthought in the, in the standard framework of the pure time preference theory, the way like Mises and Rothbard develop it. And so I say, where else in Austrian economics do we act like that? We don't like solve prices in a barter economy and then throw on money as an afterthought. Mises explicitly condemns mainstream economists for doing that and says that's why they fell for the socialist calculation problems. Right, And so I'm saying, first and foremost, interest is a monetary phenomenon. What, what is interest? You're lending and borrowing money, and that's what the interest rate is quoted in. It's money for money. So it's weird, I argue, that an Austrian theory of interest abstracts away from money and just thinks in terms of real goods. So then Herbner, and so this is going to be Bob Murphy's show, episode 199. If you want to listen to it, it'll drop probably next week. He actually agreed with me that Mises and Rothbard had some problems in their own expositions, Herbner didn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. He defended time preference. So he still advocated a time preference explanation for interest. But he agreed with me that that, when you say, well, what do you mean by time preference? That, that you would do it in terms of satisfactions. That you would not say present goods are more valuable than future goods because Herbner agreed that in my work, I had shown, there's, if you go down that path by saying present goods are more valuable than future goods, you're going to run into a lot of problems. And, so, and he, agreed, he said, yeah, yeah you're, you're right. So that's why we don't want to say that. So for him what time preference means is that present satisfactions are more valuable than future satisfactions or other things equal. You'd prefer to achieve a satisfaction sooner rather than later. 
And then the last thing I'll say is what Herbner advocated, he said that the pure time preference theory is a calculation theory of interest. And he said that ironically, Fetter was much better on this than Mises and Rothbard, or clearer at least, that Fetter was always crystal clear that interest was to be understood in terms of money. So it wasn't that you were taking future bushels of wheat and discounting them to present bushels. No, the, anything that happened in the future that the capital good yielded, you would convert to money terms and then you were always discounting money. And so Herbner is arguing, just like how the Austrians talk about the socialist calculation problem and everything's got to be turned into money prices and appraisement. And that's to under, how you understand it. Don't think of it in terms of barter. That he's saying that's what we need to do when it comes to interest. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.